listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast, where I discuss writing. Only today, we're going back into music again. Oh my goodness, again? Yes. We're going to be talking about the music of the band Ween, featuring Gene and Dean Ween. Of course, that's not their real names. The inspiration behind this episode is another podcast called Bandsplain, where the host assumedly either doesn't like the band or doesn't have much knowledge of the band, and then someone comes on who is a fan of the band and explains their appeal. And I didn't think that the gentleman who came on the podcast did a very good job of explaining the appeal, and he didn't even seem to really like a lot of Ween's output. So uh, that doesn't mean that I'm going to be better at it. I'm just going to talk about my favorite Ween music and why I like them and all that stuff. I don't know whether this will be a long episode or not because I am getting over what I think might be a sinus infection. I haven't had any cold symptoms, but the pollen count here lately has been crazy. The weather has gone cold again in Georgia. I have a cup of hot tea to help me get through this. I might pop a fisherman's friend in my mouth at some point. But my new novel, Green Skin, just came out. I mailed out signed copies, and I didn't sell as many as Demise of the Trinity, but I wasn't expecting to sell many at all. So the sales that I got from the free giveaway were quite a surprise. Now, the amount of readers I get, that's questionable, but uh, some reviews have come in. Some good, one bad. Um, I'm not going to address the bad. I am publishing essays on Substack, and I've kind of responded to the ongoing rhetoric in bad reviews from my books. So there's that. But for the most part, it's been a positive experience. And my advice to all you indie authors out there is that If you do end up reading your reviews, just remember that the reviews are more a reflection of the reviewer and not the product. So kind of giving a little bit of background for those of you who are listening for the first time, because I know that some of you are like, why doesn't he just start talking about Ween? This podcast is generally a literary podcast where I read and dissect and analyze literature. And this week I wanted to do Ween as explained before. But I am also a musician. I am the person behind the sounds that begin and end the podcast. And last week, I put out an episode about my music. It is entitled Lurking Vowel, which is the name I release my music under. And I started out kind of like Ween did. And that's one of the reasons why I found their story inspiring. I started out home recording. I still do home recording, but in a, a better production style, I suppose. But You know, back in the 80s when they started, they were using cassette tapes and they didn't really know how to play their instruments. When I started recording, I barely knew how to play the guitar. I mean, I knew chords, I knew scales, I knew how to play songs, but I didn't really get good at at either songwriting or uh, playing guitar until about 10 years into it. And that's kind of when Ween start to get really good. Now, I'm not 
a diehard Ween fan that is going to appeal to every single Ween fan out there. And there are some Ween fans that will agree with my assessments and some who will not. And I don't want you to think going into this that I'm going to be composing a ween circle jerk in the form of a, of, of a podcast. No, what I'm doing is I'm just kind of talking about their music, my relationship with it. I'm not here to critique ween. Okay. So this is also not an episode where I'm going to be giving you a history of the band at least not in the sense that I'm starting from the beginning and the end. No. The first album that I want to talk about is 12 Golden Country Greats. This is the album that was largely derided on the Bandsplain podcast. Now, 12 Golden Country Greats almost sounds like a greatest hits album. It's not. It is a country album that they released the same year. Well, they actually recorded it the same year as The Mollusk. The Mollusk came out a year later, or maybe months later. I'm not looking at the official timeline. But what I like about 12 Country Greats is that it is a straightforward country album with that ween flair on the lyrics. Now, the only kind of weird oddity in the whole thing, I I guess the the vocals on Fluffy could be considered weird, sure, but um, Piss Up a Rope has a what might be a ring modulator or a digitech whammy but there's definitely some weird effect on the guitar in that song but it's a good it's a good song but that's not my introduction to ween but that is actually the place that i recommend new ween fans start i started taking guitar lessons around 2004 and my guitar instructor was in a band called thunder monkey they were largely a cover band and the guitar player and lead singer eventually moved to Athens for that music scene. I don't know if he's able to do it for a living, but he's in Athens now and the band broke up in the late two thousands. But he told me during one of our lessons that they were going to do a set of ween songs for Halloween. And this is at a local restaurant that has now moved to a different part of of the town square there's now an italian restaurant in its place but we my mother and i went and we didn't even get to see the ween songs but uh, he burnt me a copy of the ween set that they were playing and the only song that i really remember is bananas and blow so when i eventually became aware of ween again later on because I always kind of wrote them off as being uh, they might be giants, but um, a little bit more adult, I guess. Now I would describe them as being uh, they might be giants, but drunk. Somehow in one of those Spotify Discover playlists, I started hearing the song Even If You Don't, which is from the album White Pepper. And I loved that song a lot. I had it on my playlist, my random playlist, and I listened to it over and over again. I loved the structure. I love that it sounded like a Beatles song. I love the guitar solo on it. But for some reason, I didn't really progress into really listening to each Ween album until mid, well, early to mid 2022, which was last year. 
And I started with 12 Golden Country Greats because I knew about the album. Ironically enough, I knew about it from, is it the movie U-Turn with Sean Penn? Because Billy Bob Thornton listens to Piss Up a Rope at his garage. And someone on IMDb pointed out that since streaming and MP3s were not a thing during the time period the movie came out, that man had to leave town to go find that album specifically at a record store to buy it. But 12 Golden Country Greats has I'm Holding You as the opening track, and it's a very straightforward country song. Gene Ween doesn't sing with a southern accent, but it has kind of a blue eyes crying in the rain feel to it. And I love that they used actual Nashville session players from the 60s and 70s on this album. It would have been really cool if they got Brent Mason to play on it, obviously. Maybe they'll make another country album sometime. I doubt it. But, you know, Japanese Cowboy gets more into the strange territory, even though it's all just a metaphor for that one line, something ain't right. But Piss Up a Rope is where the album really kicks off into strange territory. I Don't Want to Leave You on the Farm is just silly. Pretty Girl is, is silly. Powder Blue is silly. But the the songs that get the most derision for whatever reason, aside from Piss on the Rope, it, it are uh, Mr. Richard Smoker and maybe help me scrape the mucus off my brain. But we all know why people are upset about Mr. Richard Smoker because it's all about a gay man or calling someone gay. Now, you have to remember, this was released in 1996, and the song is tongue-in-cheek. It's not meant to be homophobic. It's not meant to be mean to anyone specifically that I'm aware of. It's just a silly song, and if you don't have a sense of humor about it, that's fine, but you have to understand that there's a time and place for everything. You know, recently I was listening to... Louis C.K. because he's been doing a round of podcasts and in the middle of this podcast when Michael Jordan got brought up he straight up called Michael Jordan the F word and I don't mean fuck so there are people who still have that kind of sensibility about them where they're using terminology just to be obscene but those songs I don't want to leave you on the farm through powder blue they're Aside from the lyrics, just very straightforward country songs, as is You Were the Fool. Fluffy is that concert classic where they turn into more of a jam band, which probably pisses some people off that I say that, but it's true. They will, you know, turn Fluffy into a 10-minute song, even though it's this silly song about a a three-legged dog. And the most that happens in, in it is that he leaves the porch and that he's told to come back to the porch. If you like classic country music, you don't have to necessarily be from the South. A lot of people from all over the world love classic country. But you have to understand that they're doing it with a certain intent. Yes, on one hand, they're trying to make a straightforward country album because they love country music. But also, there's a bit of tongue-in-cheek you know, irony to it all. And I was talking to my friend about it because he was, he had just listened to this album for the first time the other week. And he said he was worried that they were making fun of him. The listener, he said that 
in the 90s when Weezer came along, he thought that they were making fun of him and other listeners and their music to an extent. I've never gotten that sensibility from Weezer. I always felt like Weezer were made up of people who should be made fun of, especially Rivers Cuomo. I have a little bit of trouble remembering the quite the timeline where I really started to listen to the other Ween albums, but it was shortly after discovering 12 Country Greats last year in its entirety. And um, I think Quebec would be the next point of interest for me and other listeners. So Quebec is what I would consider their last really good album. After Quebec, they released Shinola, which is full of old unreleased stuff. They have a bunch of live albums that have come out since then. But their last studio album was released in 2007, and it's entitled La Cucaracha. And there's some some division in the fan base on it, but I think that for the most part, nobody considers La Cucaracha to be anywhere near Ween's best album. And it's funny to think about where I was in in terms of life when these albums come out. And in 2007, I was either in my last semester of my freshman year and my first semester of my sophomore year, unless it came out in the summer. Again, I don't have the timeline up. I just have Spotify in my hand right now because, you know, that's the kind of research we do around here. But I don't think that La Cougarache is a bad album. I just think that none of it's very memorable. And it's a reason, there is a reason why they haven't gone back and recorded again together after that album because it, it, it just wasn't working anymore. And I think that Dean Ween has made some very interesting music since then with the Dean Ween band. Um, as far as Gene Ween solo stuff, I haven't liked any of it, unfortunately. Um, again, I'm not a diehard Ween fan. There are diehard Ween fans who don't like the Gene Ween stuff. I think that it's entitled Freeman, I believe. But um, Quebec is generally considered to be their last great hurrah. And there's also debate on whether or not it's a true Ween album because allegedly it was all written by Gene. But Dean is all over this album. It's Going to Be a Long Night is very much one of his songs, and it's in that Motorhead style. That seems to be something that was written by a good guitarist, and that would be Dean. Zoloft, that's definitely more Gene. And I love Zoloft, by the way. I think that's a great song. The one song that I don't love as much as other people do seems to be Transendermal Celebration. It's cool that there's the story behind the guitar solo, and I'll tell it, but Dean was having trouble coming up with the guitar solo, so the guitar tech for Ween heard that Carlos Santana's gear was put into storage nearby because he was on tour. So they broke into the storage facility, and they took pictures of all of Santana's equipment so that they could put it back exactly as it was. And then they recorded with Carlos Paul Reed Smith guitar through his, what I'm thinking is a Mesa amp just for that simple little solo. And it's a cool solo. Sure. It's a cool song. I don't like it as much as the other songs in the album. In fact, one of the things that I wish 
I could change about it. And I mean, I could, if I just uploaded the song to my computer and chopped it up in audacity, but that's the introduction, not my favorite introduction. Okay. But so many of the people, so many people in the neighborhood, great song. It's this weird feeling early ween kind of thing. That's a great sentence, Patrick. But Tried and True is the song that got me into this album. So I was listening to This Is Ween on Spotify. And I think the first song that popped up was Tried and True. And I remember someone on another Ween podcast said that it felt like a Beck song. And I don't know that I would compare it to Beck. It's just a very cool acoustic guitar song with that low-tuned vocal on top and it has an emotional resonance to it despite that it does have that cheekiness that ween songs tend to have but if you ever want to drive your wife crazy because not many women listen to ween as compared to the men in the audience um, hey there fancy pants is a great great song to turn on chocolate town is on my ween playlist on Spotify but I think that the album is containing many different gems one of them being I Don't Want It which is about uh, Gene Ween's divorce and I would say that if you could save yourself you'd save us all is also about his divorce it all kind of comes back to what Dean was talking about years ago when he was being interviewed and he was asked to give an example of a song that he would want his interview played out on. And he said, bridge over troubled water because they are a great duo. They're a great songwriting duo. And that's been the heart of Ween from the beginning, no matter how strange or funny they got, they've always been a serious songwriting duo. And I think those two songs in particular showcase that I don't want it. And if you could save yourself, you'd save us all. Those are phenomenal songs, even if you're not a Ween fan. The finality of If You Could Save Yourself also kind of foreshadows a lot of what was going on with the band after this album. You know, Gene Ween's drug problems where he was trying to get sober and Dean Ween absolutely refusing to get sober. In fact, several years ago, before the first Dean Ween album came out and uh, we all know the song Dickie Betts by the Dean Ween Group. If you don't, go listen to it. It's great. Uh, he was being interviewed by this guy that used to work for Rolling Stone, I believe. I can't remember his name. They're both playing Stratocasters. They're you know, hanging out in a shed. But they've obviously bo- both done blow. And I mean, this is not a young man doing blow. These are two men in their 40s, maybe 50s, doing blow together. White Pepper is the next album that I really got into and the one that I recommend listening to next. Exactly where I'm at is this tremendous opener that is the first time, aside from Moments on the Mollusk, I think that White Pepper is the first time that they're finally embracing. They don't have any sense of being mainstream, but they're finally embracing the fact that they're major label artists. And therefore, they have the budget to do something greater than what they were doing when they were just recording songs in their kitchen. You know, um, 
push the little daisies sounds like something that they came up with in their house. Whereas exactly where I'm at sounds like a studio song. And then even if you don't, I've already talked about it, but that song is not only one of my favorite ween songs it's one of my favorite songs, period. Uh, Bananas and blow is one that I, I admittedly tend to skip. It doesn't really fit the album with the sensibility that it's both a, a classic rock sounding album, but also imparts uh, a tribute to the Beatles, you know, exactly where I'm at. And even if you don't have that Beatles feel stroke race is basically motorhead, not the last time they did motorhead, obviously, but then Pandy Flacker, Pandy Fackler, either way you want to pronounce it. That's a very Steely Dan sounding song. And the band that was on Bandsplain, who is a Steely Dan fan, as am I, disputed that it sounded like Steely Dan. He just said, everyone sound, says it sounds like Steely Dan. Well, it does. Even the the steel guitar on it, it's very reminiscent of the first Steely Dan album. And even on the first Steely Dan album, Can't Buy a Thrill, I think that's the name of it. They have that kind of shimmy shoe feel to their music in some songs, you know. I think that Steely Dan truly became Steely Dan with the album Katie Lied, which is their fourth album. But I've never been a fan of Pretzel Logic. I, I like their first two albums, particularly the first album. Then Katie Lied comes in, and that's when Steely Dan is finally really Steely Dan because all the original members, aside from Walter Becker and Donald Fagan are gone. And it's really ironic to have a song called Stay Forever about three years before your divorce album comes out. I guess it's possible that Gene was in a different place then. And he also has a song about his daughter that ends the album called She's Your Baby, which I don't really listen to that often, to be fair. Quebec and White Pepper both have 10 out of 10 songs. They are not 10 out of 10 albums, though. I think that one of the things that is universal with each of Ween's albums is that they all have great songs. The only one that I would say is a 10 out of 10 album, no skips, is 12 Golden Country Greats. There are some people out there who would scream heresy. I'm sorry. I love Ween. Don't get me wrong. I have no complaints about Ween. You know, I just have preferences about Ween. The Mollusk is the more challenging album out of their big label albums. I'm Dancing in the Show Tonight, Statement of Purpose song, it's fine. But The Mollusk, the title track, is when the album really kicks into gear. Again, I'll Be Your Johnny on the Spot has a slight motorhead feel. I didn't know that anyone could be big enough of a motorhead fan to have three songs that sound like them. Uh, Mutilated Lips is just a great song that fits in with the mollusk theme. The Blarney Stone is one of the songs that my guitar instructor's band covered. I don't know why. It's just kind of a pirate shanty, and they even sing it in pirate voices. But Waving My Dick in the Wind, my God, that is a song. And it sounds a lot like Haircut 100 to me because of that fast-paced, funky guitar. It's one of those that 
I always come back to. You could have different lyrics on it about churches or Bibles, something aside from dicks or genitalia. It'd still be a great song. Buckingham Green. Some people kind of think that this is inspired by something other than Led Zeppelin, but it sounds a lot like later period Led Zeppelin, like in the evening sort of thing. Ocean Man, the SpongeBob song, you got to love it. My friend Chris and I like to make up different lyrics for it based on something that I can't talk about in public, but he knows what I'm talking about, Baby Cakes. Chocolate and Cheese is the last album that I think is really palatable. Again, I'm not saying that you know the pod is a bad album. It's just not something that I prefer to listen to. I know the stallion, you know, I'm the stallion man, but I think that pure guava is fine, but chocolate and cheese is the first really good ween album. Again, I'm sorry. You can send your bullets and, uh, death threats to me later. Uh, but chocolate and cheese starts with take me away, which is this, Great take on both the Doors and lounge music. Spinal Meningitis is just a really weird song that took me a long time to really get. But Freedom of 76, I suggest listening to this album after you've listened to Sign of the Times by Prince. Listen to that album and then listen to Chocolate and Cheese and you'll get it more. But this album's all over the place. It's got a lot of Prince influence on it. Some great guitar on it. I mean, the solo on Roses Are Free, absolutely fucking classic. Makes the whole album, if you ask me. I like what Diener was talking about a lot. It feels like one of the 80s tributes to R.E.M., in a sense. This album came out in 1994, by the way. Oddly enough, I don't think that Ween has any songs that are like R.E.M. They've got songs that sound like the fucking Doobie Brothers and Thin Lizzy, but they don't have a a strictly R.E.M. tribute song. They have all these other songs that sound like Prince and just about anyone else that's ever existed in rock ever. But what Diener was talking about and maybe stay forever you know they've got that almost jangly feel but still not quite rem to conclude our talk about ween i am going to tell you about my ween drive time playlist which i put together right when i was really getting into ween last year and when my wife and i were coming back from florida and i was going to drive and she was going to sleep but it was mainly to drive her crazy with ween so It starts with I'm Holding You, Japanese Cowboy, Piss Up a Rope, Mr. Richard Smoker, and then Fluffy. So about half of 12 Golden Country Greats. Push the Little Daisies, that's the only song from Pure Guava, Take Me Away, Freedom of 76, Roses Are Free, What Diener Was Talking About, The Mollusk, Mutilated Lips, Waving My Dick in the Wind, Ocean Man, Exactly Where I'm At, Even If You Don't, Pandy Flackler, Stay Forever, Zoloft, Tried and True, Captain, Chocolate Town, I Don't Want It, If You Could Save Yourself, and it all ends with Dickie Betts by the Dean Ween Group. I'm going to conclude the podcast by reading my latest Substack essay. 
And lately I've been kind of going back and forth on whether or not I should keep posting on Substack because I'm not active on Twitter anymore. I have deleted most of my tweets once again, and I didn't have very many to delete. I'm not really getting anything positive out of social media other than TikTok where I'm putting together videos with my music on top and people are actually listening to my music for a change. But in terms of engaging with a so-called audience, I'm getting more downloads from Reddit than Twitter. So I'm pretty much done with Twitter. Unless something changes, I'm done. So this is an essay entitled Context. I can't eat at hibachi places anymore because of my fish allergy. Prior to my esophagus surgery in 2019, I ate shrimp and shellfish, but my gastro doctor advised me against eating any kind of fish at all. Not only is there potential cross-contamination, but the reality is that allergies are weird. They can come and go. Before almost every mid-sized town had a Japanese steakhouse, my extended family used to go out of town together just to sit around a giant skillet while a man put on a show for us. The novelty alone was worth the trek. For some reason, I always ordered an orange soda. Others noted that these hibachi restaurants are all, always have good orange soda, so I'm not alone in this regard. Perhaps the flavor complements all the food being cooked together. I noticed that all of our drinks were very close, close to the skillet. Every person on the planet has spilled a drink before, and it's embarrassing when it happens in public. But I wondered what would happen if I pretended to accidentally spill my orange soda all over the food cooking in front of us. I imagine that would ruin everyone's evening, including the poor man who would have to pour vodka on the hot surface to clean all the sugar off. I didn't act on that thought, though. This is a memory I shared with a woman my father and former stepmother let live with them in Louisiana. She was a short, half-Korean, 26-year-old woman with almost black eyes and an exotic attic backstory that was very new to 13-year-old me. My mother did a good job keeping dangerous or potentially poor influences out of my life for the most part. Dad wasn't as discerning. Really, Dad was more concerned about her children having a place to sleep and eat, and he didn't care much for her. Now, this is what you need to know about me. I have always liked older women. When I was two years old, Dad and my pawpaw took me to a jewelry store. From their recollection, there was a gorgeous woman inside, and it took... I took it upon myself to give her leg some extra warmth by wrapping my arms and legs around her. This is definitely not something I do now. Now, not only do I not like touching other people or being touched for the most part, I sometimes hesitate to even touch my wife. But obviously, I was a different person in 1994. The lady didn't kick me across the room or shriek in horror, but rather thought it was cute and asked who was the father, to which Paul Paul responded, He's mine! So I'm 13 and alone late at night with this 26-year-old woman who I think I'm in love with. If you're curious as to how this relationship progressed, it didn't. At no point did I even let on that I found her attractive. However, she really liked talking to me and remarked that it was like having a conversation with an adult, which is apparently an icky thing to say according to every kid under the age of 25 on the internet. You're very mature for your age is a red flag. I'm 31, so people never remark about how mature I am, only when I'm being immature. When I told this woman about intrusive thoughts like spilling orange soda on the hibachi table, she said that everyone has weird thoughts like that. 
The difference is that I didn't act on it. See, there's a lot of fear about how we express ourselves. Our parents and culture should teach us not to say everything that comes to our minds. However, it's okay to think certain things as long as you don't vocalize or act on them. If you want to get intellectual and psychological about it, human instincts make us want to do crazy things. The other day, my wife told me she read about why we feel the need to squeeze babies when we see them. According to her sources, our brain basically has acuteness overload and wants to destroy these helpless creatures because we don't know how to handle it. We don't act on this impulse because we don't we don't want to hurt the baby, though. We even have murderous impulses when we're angry. When we're depressed, sometimes we have intrusive thoughts about hurting ourselves. I never thought I'd write about this, something many of us learned in high school psychology or even just living life, but such notions aren't part of the concept we refer to as common sense. And listen, I do not consider myself a smart person. I'm pretty well read because I enjoy reading and studied literature once or twice in college, but anyone can read, unless they're illiterate, of course. At no point have I tried to convey myself as being good at anything either. I have opinions, and they're informed by my experience like anyone else. It strikes me as bizarre when readers equate fiction with the author's actual thought process or any sense of reality. To be fair, each of my favorite authors dealt with this perception in their careers. Hell, there are Richard Thompson fans who think every song about dissing an ex is about his former wife, Linda. But if he wrote a song about a man living on a mountain, killing rabbits for stew and screwing goats, no one would think Thompson lived that lifestyle. I happen to believe that the best writing is the result of getting in the mindset of a character, though. That's one reason I prefer reading first-person narratives. Some authors take that ideal to the extreme, hence Brett Easton Ellis' American Psycho, a book I have never shied away from mentioning as an influence, and seemingly some readers do not really remember. My first four novels have murderers, a rapist, a detective, millionaires, antichrist, Satan, and many other fictional characters. At no point has anyone ever suggested that I am any of these things. I find it ironic that someone who writes autobiographical essays gets ragged on by critics for potentially fictionalizing his work. I've never heard David Sedaris state he made anything up in any of his stories, yet critics and internet armchair experts suggest... He made up a lot of shit. Meanwhile, some readers believe everything Bukowski ever wrote was the truth, despite that he presented his work as fictional. And I'd much rather talk about Bukowski than myself, so indulge me for the millionth time. There are two facts about Charles Bukowski no one can easily refute. He wrote literary fiction and his poetry changed the genre for the later half of the 20th century, and that influence continues in contemporary poetry. I would go as far to say that even poets who dislike or never read Bukowski are indirectly influenced by him. I suppose I could define influence as both positive and negative, but I don't feel like indulgently breaking down everything for you today. Bukowski was a complex person like anyone else, and he wasn't strictly good or bad. With the rise of feminist theory in American academia right now around the time he gained popularity, it's no surprise he's no literary darling. When I taught Bukowski's poetry to my English 1101 course, I assigned poems that were far removed from the stereotypical womanizing alcoholic poet. However, I broke down the, the criticism of his misogyny during our first session on his writing. 
I brought up F. Scott Fitzgerald as an example of someone widely accepted and taught in high schools and academia despite the way he treated his wife Zelda. Many, many men of the literary canon were cruel to women and also suffered from alcoholism. This never stopped professors from assigning their work in the past. I suppose the difference is that Bukowski actually wrote brutally honest accounts of his flaws, but often fictionalized them to the point of almost parody. For the following session, I assigned my students more raw poems like Girl in a Miniskirt Reading the Bible Outside My Window. This poem in particular got the biggest reaction, though not outraged so much as curious disgust. It's one thing to not like Bukowski. That's fine. I've never tried to force him on anyone, unless you count me assigning his poetry to my students. However, to dismiss this poem as sick or sexist is basically ignoring the same critical thought we apply to Great Gatsby. Consider the title. One of these things does not belong. A miniskirt and Bible in the same sentence? Yeah, we call that juxtaposition. While a Bible represents God, rules, stories, laws, death, and resurrection, a miniskirt represents a lot less in comparison. The first two things that come to mind are youth and sex appeal. Remember to put your big boy pants on when we talk about mature topics. The poem goes on to describe the girl reading outside the speaker's window. At no point does Bukowski express a desire to touch or even speak to her. That didn't stop students from assuming he was a dirty old man fantasizing about this girl. None of them could provide evidence as to why, though. This was just their assumption. I was reminded of how my English 1101 professor spoke to us about the book of Genesis and how the text does not ever state Lucifer is the serpent and the fruit eats as an apple. However, through assumption, we're taught that Lucifer, who t- it was Lucifer who tempted Eve, and most art depicting this moment incorporates apples. I suppose my students were seeing something that wasn't there as if their brains were finishing the thought, much like viewers swearing they saw Leatherface put that poor lady on a meat hook, even though the camera never shows this happen. The last line should tell you everything you need to know, though. Bukowski writes, She's reading about God. I am God. Many assume that he's aligning himself with God through egotism. Perhaps this is an ironic statement, though. The self-deprecating man who wrote Ham on Rye and constantly referred to himself as ugly wouldn't actually believe he was anything close to God. I asked my students to name someone else who referred to themselves as God or a God in media, and of course Kanye came up. Prior to him outing himself as an insane anti-Semite, Kanye often wrote songs intended to piss people off and cause controversy. A reader unfamiliar with Bukowski would likely be pissed off or dismissive that he refers to himself as God, which calls into question his entire motivation behind the poem. If you take things at face value in literature, you're going to miss out on a lot. As readers, we should consider a concept known as context. The following is a quote from American Psycho I found by searching for the word cunt, which is frequently written in the book. She rolls over. Kneeling on all fours, her ass raised up above the water, and I move to the other edge of the tub to get a better view of her cunt, which she fingers with a soapy hand. I'm not telling you what page or why this is written. However, this line is in a a novel that is on the Wikipedia page for candidates for the great American novel. I imagine some of you are disgusted or even wondering where I'm going with this. However, if you were reading the novel, you'd understand the context. In fact, if you made it through the first few chapters of the book and were suddenly surprised by that line, I'd suggest you were suffering from some malady affecting your memory.
Again, it's okay if you don't like that book. Not everyone has to like the same thing. However, it's actually stupid to suggest Brady Stanellis is a misogynist because his protagonist is a serial killer. Patrick Bateman targets both men and women. But some of the most gruesome scenes involve women. If we put on our psychology thinking caps, that makes sense since most male serial killers tend to target women. And in the setting of the late 80s, Patrick Bateman had men and women to choose from for the most part. I suppose Ellis could have written about a man who murders aliens from outer space, but that wouldn't speak to his point. Perhaps you find Ellis and Bukowski distasteful, and they don't qualify as literary fiction in your perspective. That's okay. We can look at examples of race in Flannery O'Connor's short stories. You can either call her a racist or consider the context of her writing. Hell, we can go old school and interpret The Little Black Boy by William Blake as racist. It's been done. When it comes to my writing, I never cared if people disliked my books or poetry. Someone once complained that most of my poems didn't rhyme. I've had people tell me I wasn't actually writing poetry, too. I can't really make people smarter, though. I've studied poetry for years, wrote quite a few poems that never saw the light of day, and even got some, got some journals to publish them. However, I cannot change someone's mind about their opinion on my writing. I have no interest in doing so. I really shouldn't even waste my time mentally arguing against their points against me either. After all, I'm not acting on my thoughts of pushing them from ledges and watching them fall to the ground and bounce back up like we're in Looney Tunes. I do feel pity for the next person who reads Price of the Trinity and thinks I had an affair with the professor's wife and got away with murder, though. So, I don't think that anyone should give a shit whether or not someone likes or dislikes your book. It's never bothered me when someone didn't like my book, and in some cases I've felt worse when someone gave me positive feedback than, you know, negative feedback. But there are some people who don't really understand what critique means, especially not constructive criticism. So constructive criticism means that you're giving someone something positive, not necessarily something positive that you find in their work, but something positive that they can change in their work for the better. You could say something like sentence structure or character arcs, things like that. But when you just say, I don't like this, or you start pointing fingers at someone because of your own socio-political beliefs, then that's when you start to go off the rails. When I was in grad school, I didn't take any creative writing classes. Didn't interest me at all, especially after the experiences I had in undergrad. And to my understanding, there was an instance where a woman who claimed to be of Native American ancestry wrote a short story from the perspective of a Native American, which maybe 30 years ago wouldn't have been a big deal, but you know we're living in a different time now. I would never write a short story from the perspective of someone of another race. But you know, I'm not necessarily saying it's something that you shouldn't do, but my perspective is, is that there are people of other races who were better qualified to write that perspective and they deserve to be heard. But this person just turned it in for an assignment in a creative writing class. And apparently the entire class became uh, a negative feedback fast, if you will, where all the students were kind of ganging up against her and they were uncomfortable with the fact that she'd written it. They 
thought it was racist. They thought it was something that was out of her depth. And from my understanding, it didn't result in anything positive happening. You know, she didn't go back and write a better story or anything. All that she got was one giant red flag tossed over and on top of her. I think that if you find something offensive in someone's text, I think that you should talk to them about it like an adult. I don't think that it's something that you should attack someone for because everyone should be allowed the space to make a mistake for one thing. Now, in my work, I don't think I've made any mistakes like that, thankfully. For the most part, I've written from the perspective of men, white men. I have women characters. I have minority characters in Surviving New America and Birch. I have a transgender character who I absolutely love. But I think that one of the things that people don't really consider is that some things out there are just not for you. And if you're not the target audience for something and you don't like it, maybe you just wasted your time and you're upset about that because I've never known an author who got a bad review and decided to go back and change something in their book as a result of that bad review. I've never known a musician who recorded an album, released it. And after they got bad reviews said, Oh, we're going to go re-record it. That's never happened. And by the way, the only time that I've ever heard a critic or someone who wrote a critique of something in a professional capacity reviewed in an academic setting has been as supplementary material for a main text. So let's say you're reading Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. You might read articles that were written about Invisible Man, but that's not going to be your main focus. Your main focus is always going to be Ralph Ellison and his work. It's never going to be the critics. You're not going to even be able to remember the name of the critics a year later, maybe not even two weeks later. And for the most part, critics are forgettable people. They're not the creative people who put the work out. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be critics, but what people need to remember is that what drives people to critique others is often born out of insecurity. I love Roger Ebert, and I think a lot of his critiques of film were valid. But you'll notice that his opinion changed on a lot of films throughout the years. You know, he re- thought of things in retrospect and said, well, you know, maybe I was too harsh on that. And in other cases, you know, he, he had a positive reaction to something. And later he was like, eh, that movie wasn't that good. But Roger Ebert was a failed writer. I wouldn't say that he was a failed writer in the sense that he didn't put out books because he put out books of his reviews, but he was a professional critic. And the fact that anyone reads his work is because he was very good at it. And he also had a TV show that didn't hurt. But in terms of him writing anything creative for a work of fiction, the last time he really wrote something was beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens in 1979. Similarly, one of my favorite film podcasts, although I don't know that I would call it a favorite, 
is by two filmmakers, but they haven't made films that you would ever know. They have films that were adequate enough to be put on IMDb, but no one's seen them. For the most part, no one you've ever known has been in them, and there's a reason they're not still making films. And listen, I know all too well as a musician, you've got to put out a lot of bad work before you can really get to your good work. There are very, 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 very few artists out there who come out of the gate with an original voice and start making great albums or making great books or movies or whatever. Very few of them. I am actually very proud of my body of work. In the span of over a decade, I have released almost 60 albums. In the span of less than five years, I have put out some great novels. You may not think I'm a great writer. I don't think I'm a great writer, but I think that Demise, Price, Surviving New America, Birch, I think those are really good novels. I don't think that they're Pulitzer worthy. I don't think that they're worthy of being, you know, broken down in college classrooms, but I think that they're good books. But Greenskin, my latest novel, it, re- it remains to be foreseen because I never really know how I feel about a work until it's been out for a while. But at this moment in time, I'm proud of it. I think it's a good book. I don't know if it's going to be a great book. I don't know if it's going to be something that a lot of people dislike. But here's the thing. If everyone in the world told me that they thought that book sucked, I would not give a shit. Because I wrote a book for me. I wrote it because I wanted to do something different. And if you haven't caught on yet from my Substack and all the different things that I've written about Greenskin and also all the things I've said about it, Greenskin, while it is a literary novel, it's also poking fun of a lot of literary tropes. And it's directly inspired by literary authors like Percival Everett, who I adore, by the way. But there's a lot of Bredesen Ellis influence. There's a lot of Bukowski influence. And there are a couple of scenes in this book. There are only two sex scenes, by the way. The rest of the book has very little to do with sex. But there are two sex scenes in this book. And there were sex scenes in previous books that I've written, by the way. So this is nothing new for me. But since it's a literary novel, I did my due diligence and actually researched literary novels with sex scenes in them. And it turns out there are a lot of literary novels with sex in them. And there's nothing wrong with that. And again, I am from the school of Bredesen Ellis and Bukowski. Uh, Have you ever read a book called Slaughterhouse Five? Yeah. It's never directly written that the protagonist is fucking around with this woman in this dome in terms of describing the events that occur in the dome. But this woman is essentially his concubine. This is a novel that is revered as one of the greatest of all time. My wife is reading Greenskin, by the way, and she's really enjoying it. And so far, she said there's only one direct reference to sex that I've read so far. And she's several chapters in, and she said, it's so much tamer than things that I've read in Colleen Hoover's books. So... If you're interested in green skin, if you like something with a humorous bent, please go check it out. It's still 99 cents as an ebook 
I think the paperback is six bucks. I sent out signed copies, so if you didn't volunteer for that giveaway, I'm sorry. Anyway, this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. Happy reading. Happy writing. Go get a life. Thank you.